My guest today is the founder and president at Life Changing Capital, a private equity real estate firm. Please welcome Ryan Nunes. Ryan, long time. How's it going? Good. Good to see you, Rodolfo. How are you? Hey, doing well. Doing well. Good to see you too. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, hey, let's jump right into this. What do you do? So I am uh, an owner of a private real estate equity company, and we invest in multifamily apartments in the Texas Triangle. Texas Triangle being DFW, Houston, and San Antonio. So we buy underperforming apartment buildings, rehab them, change property management, and just manage the asset very tightly from an ownership perspective and applying a lot of the principles that I used to manage teams on Wall Street to multifamily to make the assets perform well. Okay, great. Now, have you always had a passion for real estate investing? Because I know before this, you were in energy derivative and commodity sales. So is this always been a passion of yours? You know, it, frankly, it hasn't. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of had blinders on when I worked in the energy world. I mean, commodities was such a hot thing for a long period of time, despite all the booms and busts. And I was raising two children. And so now, now they're nine and 10. So it just opened up a little bit more time and opportunity to see things from a different perspective. And particularly multifamily became very interesting to me when I learned about the tax benefits. And pretty much for every dollar that I invested in multifamily, I got roughly an 80 cents tax credit back on my tax statement. So that was huge. And then marrying with working with teams and then also just the ability to run a business. And so all of those things, then seeing an industry that frankly has been, people have done things the same way for a lot of time and saying, you know, what can we do to um, implement a more institutional approach to to the asset class? And, you know, the assets that we target are pretty much $30 million and under. And when you get above that, then it's a totally different ballgame. You have a, a lot of large, very institutional investors, but below 30 million is a lot of mom and pop investors. And so we feel that we can differentiate ourselves by underwriting in terms of deal analysis and being more data-driven, being more hands-on and just applying a lot of the principles that made us successful on Wall Street. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so this change, worked on Wall Street, you're a derivative sales person. Now you're working in teams, you're owning your own business, you're in a particular field that you might not have had as much experience or knowledge about. So how was that transition? Yeah, I mean, I look at it and it was back in May where I made the transition, May of 2019. And at that time, I knew very little about how to underwrite deals. Just, you know, approached it as I uh, approach anything is that I wanted to, you know, learn as much as possible and be the best that I could at it and spend the time. And so it, it took a lot of time in terms of really mastering underwriting and understanding the market. And because for me, everything is like when you understand a commodity, like whether it's oil or gas, you understand all the fundamentals, what drives it. Then you understand relative value in terms of locations. And the same thing in real estate is I just, you know, everything for me is just paralleling what I used to do in oil and gas to real estate. And then once we started looking at assets, we actually looked at over 300 opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so it was just trial by fire. It was like, okay, what are we learning from looking at each and every deal? And what are we learning about 
and what the sellers, you know, put, how they're positioning the asset, what, what types of rehabs they're doing, and what are they doing right, what are they doing wrong, where are they hiding things in the financial statements. And so all of that really helped us um, get a lot of experience evaluating deals and then trying to pick the ones that we thought would perform best and the ones that we could buy. Nice. Now, talking about that, you're looking at, I guess, the, the purchase price of these deals versus the cost of repairs and renovations. So how do you identify what types of buildings will offer you the, the best returns on investment? Yeah, so we, we look at a few things. One is the, the financing that you can get in this space is very, very attractive. So we close an apartment in mid-October. We got 80% loan to value on that asset. Actually, 82.5% loan to value on that asset, which is astonishing. Um, at a rate, that one was 3.7-ish for 10 years, which is amazing. Uh, yeah. So in terms of one, can we get good financing like that on an asset? And that's non-recourse. So that's also very attractive versus you know me being personally liable. And then two, how has the asset performed historically? The assets that we've purchased, this one in particular, there's 29,000 cars that drive by the property a day. It has stayed 96% occupied for the past 20 years. And so that's a story that we like. The owner was outside of the state. He was in California. We bought this asset in San Antonio and he'd owned it for 21 years. And so when someone's owned something for so long, sometimes they don't see the new vision. Like what could right. this be? You know, what if we changed? And he kept it like a classic car. The cabinets were the original wood from 1960. The building looked like a preserved in a museum. And for us, you know, we want to add some new color tones. We want to add some, you know, upgraded faucets because that's what residents want, right? Mm -hmm. They want to go into a unit and, and see a light gray color wall versus just a hospital white. Um, so we look for opportunities to add value. So you can add value by taking someone's asset and saying, hey, we can rehab the units and bump rents he was running expenses really high. So our business plan is in the first year to cut expenses by a third. And so part of that was he had three people on staff and their payroll was around $160,000. Ours is gonna come in around 90, already $70,000 saved. So, um, you know, those types of just being tighter uh, around managing the asset and cutting expenses. So we look for those types of opportunities. So good performance, can we get good financing and is there a value add? Nice. Okay, great. And congrats on that. I think you had two deals that you closed on recently. So congrats That's on right. that. One of them Thank was you. the 150 units, 153, sorry, units. That Costa Mesa? That's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. right. It's here in, here in Houston. So that's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Great. Great. So one thing you're looking for these deals and you, and you broke what you're looking for, but are you looking at location, the number of units, amenities, conditions, what other? Yeah, deals? no, that's great, 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 great questions. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, real estate is you know, even on the residential side or storefronts, they say location, location, mm. location, same thing with apartment buildings. And, mm. um, you know, I kind of alluded to it, both the San Antonio property we purchased at 29,000 cars that drive by today, our property in Houston that we just bought actually has 49,000. Oh, so, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of highly trafficked roads a property, which just can bring in more foot traffic into the property. So that's really important. So location in terms of number of units, our San Antonio property was 88. And so that's on the smaller side of what we would do. Our Houston property is more in the sweet spot of 153 units. You just have more scale. So for instance, 88 units, we can just afford two people on site, 150 we're going to have four people on site. So just more people to, to cater to the tenants to make sure that they're being really proactive in terms of leases. Um, 
and just tighter operations for the asset. So multifamily is very much single family housing on steroids. You just have this scale. And so, you know, if you have 153, if you have 300 units, then you can just spread the cost over that number of units. So that's something that's very attractive in multifamily. Okay. And now when you're making that offer and you're looking at what the value is going to be, are you looking at comps, comparable deals out there, or, or are you discounting future cash flows? How are you doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, it sounds like from a modeling standpoint, I can just touch on that. So pretty much we look at, okay, what is the the trailing 12 months financials? What's the trailing three? And then we, we chart those on trends. And then we look at our form when we do years one through five, and then year five becomes a terminal value. And then we apply a cap rate, which is effectively the inverse of a PE ratio. And so, you know, similar to how stocks may look from a, a DCF perspective, where you apply a multiple, that's similar to uh, what's done in multifamily. You apply a multiplier, and typically, that's just if people say a six cap rate, and basically you're multiplying that terminal years net operating income by sixteen or seventeen times. And so, what you can accrete to in Years five, six adds a tremendous amount of value to the property. So it's uber important for, we tell our, our staff that for every dollar we save on expenses is worth $17 when we sell the property. And so we just want people to think like that. Yeah. And we want them to understand that there's a multiplier effect in multifamily. So we just try to keep things real tight. And as far as selling, is that usually years five through seven, something like that? Yeah. So we underwrite to a five-year hold. And okay. we put debt on the property so that we can exit early. And the market has been very hot for both of these properties. You know, just anecdotally, it asked about sales comps, super important to us because again, we think in relative value. So for our San Antonio asset, we paid 62,500 a unit and a property traded similar vintage, similar size in a worse sub market by demographics, just median income traded for 96,500. And so per unit, so, you know, we, we bought it for about a third less. Oh. And similarly in our, our Houston asset that we just purchased, we're buying that 19% below five recent deals that traded in worse submarkets and both from a demographic standpoint of, of median income and, and home value. So, you know, from that perspective, we feel, you know, that sales comp, it goes to a relative value strategy and mm-hmm. you know, we want to buy things where we can then point, Hey, look at the relative value of, for the next buyer. Look at what you can buy. Look at what just traded. Like that could be you, right? So we want to pitch that story. And so it's important. I think our, our investors trust us, trust that judgment and that discipline that we look at 300 deals and we win two. That's just part of, of our approach is just very disciplined, very systematic and very data-driven. Oh, okay. Now, I'm guessing part of what you do is raising funds as well from your investors. So can you talk about that, how that works? Yeah. So kind of say you're underwriting deals and a hundred percent of the time you're fundraising. So, um, I mean, our goal, you know, it's been quote unquote friends and family, people that we've known, or we've met in the multifamily circles that have invested with us. And so we've raised last year, I was part of a team, we raised 6 million. And then just recently over the past two months, we closed deals where we had to raise 6 million. And so that came from just people writing that I've known from my professional career that trust my judgment, integrity, and wrote sizable checks into the, into the two deals. So we value those relationships and we take them very, very seriously. And I kind of approach from a sales perspective, you know, for me, I was always very client facing and I look at each investor as a client 
And so what can we do to give them information? I mean, an investor asked me a question last night and immediately he's going to get a response. Mm. Very detailed, very straightforward. Um, I've personally invested in 15 deals and I've seen just the lack of responsiveness from a number of the sponsors. And for me, just again, at the institutional approach that we want to have and the differentiating factor is just a high degree of professionalism and responsiveness. So for sure, less than 24 hour response times and just a whole level of transparency that we just feel this is the investor's money and they're investing in us because we're running it day to day. And for instance, I was just on a half an hour call before this talking through our agreement with our property manager and saying, hey, this is what the agreement says. And this is what our discussions were prior to signing the agreement. And the $10,000 you want to, some other group is saying that, that they should charge us is not valid. And they agreed, you know, so, um, you know, some people might've just rolled over and their investors just lost 10,000. But for us, it's just uber important that when investors are looking or not, that these are the things that we're doing behind the scenes. We're constantly trying to save the money. For instance, I'm out there picking out faucets for kitchens and bathrooms, just because for us, it's the look and feel. Those are the things that tenants touch that are important. And we want to make sure that tenant experience, and again, just like a client experience when I was working on Wall Street is, is just paramount. And so that tenants will want to stay, will want to renew, and then be able to absorb the higher rents that we want to charge. Nice. So bringing that Wall Street professionalism, attention to detail, client-facing experience, et cetera, to the industry. I like it. Okay. Now, let's go back to when you started this. Did you jump in full-time to this, or were you kind of dabbing in both for a little bit, doing work that you were doing on Wall Street, but also part-time getting into this area? Yeah, no, I kind of I kind of do and um, head first. So mm. when I when I sussed out the tax benefits and mm. I had a fair amount of taxable income last year that I needed to tax shelter, I said, wow, if this is real, that I could basically lower my taxable income and get a refund from the IRS, which you know, turned out to be a six-figure refund check for my 2019 taxes and will be a certain amount for 2020. I said, wow, this is worth me spending my time. And not only that, will I get a refund, but then I reinvested that in the two deals that we just bought. And so from that perspective, I'm able to generate cash flow. And then eventually when we sell those assets, I have to true up on those taxes, but it's going to be at a lower tax bracket and, or there might be additional tax benefits I can take advantage of. So there's a huge tax arb in multifamily, which makes it uber, uber attractive. And so when I learned about that and said, Hey, this could be a career. And I think the skill set to do something differentiated, and it's something that I've always wanted to run in. In a way, I've, I felt like I always did run, uh, you know, when, when we were working together at Credit Suisse, you know, I was the sole commodities person in the Houston office. So I was kind of running my own business. And so I, I've kind of been doing that for the past 13 years and just felt, hey, I can run multifamily business. And so there was a gentleman that once I was getting into this space and realizing, you know, my approach is going to be just applying the discipline, the professionalism from Wall Street to multifamily. I said, you know, there's somebody that I want to partner with that has that similar background. And so he was an XMNE banker, private equity. And so we've, we've teamed up and that's that's who partnered with about these last two deals. Nice. That's great. So can you talk about what a typical day of yours looks like? Yeah, I get up and I do a little bit of just uh, some prayer time and, and kind of a gratitude journal and then plan out the day. And then it's been getting up with fire and passion. We've taken over two assets. So there's a lot of hurrah about acquiring assets, but that's just getting up to the plate and the rest of the nine innings are, are, are battled in taking over the property and implementing our business plan. So from this week, it's been a lot of, okay, it, we have a number of people involved 
and takeover process. How do we streamline it? What are our tasks? And so we've used a software tool called Asana to just map those things out. So to reduce email traffic and just people know what they're assigned to, what needs to get done and move things forward. So figuring out how do we run this more efficiently? Here's what we promised investors. How do we get there? And what was the business plan and how do we now implement it tactically day by day? And so a lot of my time is spent doing that, doing calls, and working with other team members, we, we had a two hour call. We're doing a leasing office refresh and exterior painting on our property. And we want to get that done by Christmas. And so that's something where it's super detailed. We want it done right, just because it's a first impression type of thing. So I went out, picked out all the paint colors, worked with someone to design the interior of the leasing office and so forth. And again, just very hands-on so that the product looks good. Okay. And so, you know, it's a lot of that. It's, it's uh, in a way I say it's a business of minutia. And um, I think my goal is that for these two assets in, in six months, it becomes more of, hey, we've done all our CapEx projects or a large portion of them. We've defined what we want in terms of the, when we're turning units, when they're vacating and we're renovating them and basically property manager, we've set this all up and now you just have to somewhat on autopilot, if you will, that's the goal. But obviously with putting those processes in place that make it really tight. So that autopilot is, is like, this is what we want you to do mm. and just rinse and repeat, you know, make it real tight. And that's, that's kind of the approach I took on wall street is to spend the upfront time. And whether that was sending client indications or having a process of, you know, here's the news that we send to clients and then you'll see the fruit. And it'll get better and it'll get easier. And then that frees up our time to look at look at other opportunities. Nice. Okay, great. Now, besides the knowledge that you need of the industry, it seems like you need relationship building and maintaining skills and negotiation skills, communication skills. But what skill sets and characteristics would you say are important to be successful in your line of business? You know, I think all the skills that you mentioned, which, you know, you, you learn on, you know, having worked on Wall Street, but I think in this business, it takes a lot of perseverance and it can be a very unfair business. You know, there's people that have done deals, so they're just given preference because they can close. And so for our two deals that we closed and we made it a point to close on time, no extensions closed on time. We had non-refundable money. We'll call hard money in the business out on these properties. And we were like, we're laser focused on closing. And so my partner and I just were super close, pushing all of the different trades and vendors and everyone involved in the transaction to make sure that it went smooth. And we did what we said we we're going to do. So I think that perseverance is super, super important. And I think also in this space, transparency, because I feel it can be pretty opaque. It's one, it's an inefficient market. You're not going to know the value of your property day by day. As, as owners, we see daily reports on how the property is performing. Um, but these things take a few months to or years to sell, unlike buying Amazon stock and then punting out of it at the end of the day. So looking at 300 deals, getting in best and final on probably 20 of them and winning two, it just, it takes that level of perseverance, which can be tough. That can be very, very yeah. tough. So how stressful is that though? We're trying to close on time and having to kind of depend on different vendors and, and, and different people as well. And just how tough is that and how stressful is that? Yeah, like I said, we try to de-risk as much as we can in this business. So part of that is we've spent a lot of time with these people ahead of time. So we know, you know, here's what we are, here's what we stand for, here's what we do. And, you know, we can suss out from them or those, do they share those same qualities and, and same principles? And we've tried to surround 
ourselves with those types of people. So people on the legal side that can be responsive, people on the lending side that can be responsive, property management um, that is, is going to do a good due diligence process and the like. So we do our best to figure that out so that it makes that closing process as smooth as possible. And I think probably, you know, raising cap because you're also raising capital for the deal um, during that time. So there's a lot of balls in the air. And with just being my partner nine, eventually, you know, we'll expand and we'll be able to bring on some staff and so forth to make it easier. But frankly, I've always been a fan of doing the work yourself, learning it really well so that you can train someone to do it better. Right. Okay. All right. Now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? You know, I think there's an excitement of, for me, there's this vision in my head, you know, whether it's a small thing on the external painting or it's how does this kitchen faucet, this new kitchen faucet, which this property has never seen anything changed in the interiors. They were all white appliances before, like we put black in, like, wow, if we paint the walls gray, what is that going to look like? Because in my head, I see it, but then seeing it in person or in photo is pretty exciting. So that's something that I enjoy is just that creative aspect of it. And another thing is just working with people, having investors that trust you and being able to add value to the community of people there. And we've been partnering with some nonprofits to do that. And then also just interacting with investors and, and for them being excited, not only to invest, but to be rooting for you to do well in the, in the property. That's great. Partnering with the nonprofits. That's, that's cool. All right. Now, what about on the flip side? What challenges are out there for you? Keeps you yeah, I think, I think it's just the rejection, uh, you know, rejection in the sense you look at so many deals and it's like, you know, the market is so hot that people are willing to pay astronomical prices mm. and to have that discipline. That's hard, right? It's, it's hard. And I've seen it on the commodity side where it's like, we're competing on transactions and we lost and it's like, oh, how did that person pay that much? And then you find out they overpaid and a few months later they go out of business, right? So it's, or they shut their desk, I should say. And so, you know, we just try to be patient in this space. We, we find that we feel very comfortable with our numbers. We feel like we've done enough due diligence and analytics around the financials and the property. And so the valuations that we come up with, we feel pretty confident with. Okay. And you say so that- I think that that's the hardest thing for sure. That is the hardest thing is losing and having to just pick yourself back up each time, looking at deals and being like, oh, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Mm. And you mentioned, I think earlier, it could be 200 deals and about 197 of them, you'll get rejected. Yeah, on. Just, wow. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I would say for, for every hundred deals that you look at, probably 10% are worth pursuing. Okay. Got it. In terms of the valuation that they're asking for and the asset and so forth. Wow. All right. Now, do you have any memorable moments or, or a memorable moment that sticks out to you in your career? You know, I think honestly, having been pursuing this for a year and a half and really wanting to lead our, our own deal, when we closed our San Antonio transaction, my partner and I, and that was just super, super exciting. And it was something that took perseverance in December. I toured that asset. We bid on it. We liked it. They awarded it to somebody else that was willing to pay significantly higher than we what we were. And then we picked it up back in July for 10% lower and than what it was under contract for. So just having that patience uh, has really has, has really helped. And then fast forwarding to going through the closing process and we closed on a Wednesday, we took over on a Thursday and I was out there. It's in San Antonio, it's about three hours from my house. And I was out there with some other partners in the transaction that investors and met with a, a local church 
And part of the business that I came up with is life-changing capital. It's really to bring life change to the communities mm. by partnering with churches, nonprofits, good people, and just doing the right thing for the tenants so they have a good experience. I mean, each tenant, that's their home, even though they're renting, that's where they're in their family, that's where they're having their kids' birthday parties and so forth. So that was just really exciting to see, here's the team, here's all the things that we're going to do and walking some of the vacant units and just saying, hey, here's the plan for those and let's roll this out. Now it's time to play ball. So that was pretty exciting. My mom happened to be in town from New Jersey, so I got to take her out there. So it was just kind of seeing everything come full circle and obviously been telling her a lot about these deals and for to be able to see on that first day where we're taking over and, and just excited to go in and see all the things that we could cut from an expense perspective. I mean, just small things like they were paying $145 for newsletters that nobody was reading. They had an alarm system that was $70 a month that was just antiquated. And we put in ring cameras so I can look at my phone and I could see who's at the property, what's going on at night. And so just more in tune, more in touch with the asset. And so those small things make a big difference. That's great. Now, in July, when you found out that this deal closed, how did that happen? Was it a phone call that you got to give you a heads up and did you pop open a champagne right after? Or yeah, what? so we, we closed it in, in, in October. Um, you know, I found out in, in June, July that it fell out of contract with the previous owner. And again, you know, to the point where they had it under contract and or awarded the deal in December and in July it still hadn't closed. So we were like, that's just, again, that's not what we want to do. If we're going to put something under contract in 60 days, we're closing it. Mm-hmm. And so I was shocked, one, from an experienced buyer that they hadn't closed the deal yet. And then two, jumped all over it because I just really liked the asset. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we talked with a broker and he vouched for us. He said, yeah, these guys will close. And, and we did. And the seller, he came to know me and, and frankly started calling me every day for the last two weeks of closing <laughs> just to chat. So, you know, I think it was, he, he didn't have any kids. So it was his baby. He'd owned it for 21 years. So mm. it, it was a sentimental moment for him. Yeah. Great. Nice. All right. So, hey, Ryan, we're at the end of this interview. I want to get to this quick hitter session where I just asked you some questions for fun for, to get to know sure. you a little bit better. But before we do that, is there anything additional that you would like to discuss or any questions you feel like I might have left off asking you? No, I would just say, you know, if people want to learn more about multifamily, uh, they can, you know, check out my website, lifechangingcapital.com and hear more about my story, have a number of podcasts and and free resources and 25 questions passive investors should ask, just given the 15 or so deals that I've invested in, as well as my 13 years of Wall Street experience. So if if your listeners are interested in that, feel free to check that out. That's great. Okay. All right. So first question, favorite sports team? You know, got to root for the Rockets. Yeah. You know, it's it's horrible what's happening, and it's horrible. Yeah. But you know, they're kind of the hometown team. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. We haven't lost some of the players yet that we're thinking yeah. that we're going to lose. Yeah. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we don't. All right. Favorite movie or show? Uh, favorite show is Ball in the Family. Or- 60 minutes. I just say they're tied. Like that's just what we do every Sunday. We watch those back to back. So it's only two shows I watch. So those two shows. All right. Favorite musical artist or group? Huge U2 fan. Kind of we'll group these together. So love Elevation Worship, Love Hill Songs, and Radiohead. Mm. Yeah, so those are kind. Of, those are kind of the favorites. Nice. All right. Favorite vacation spot would be my ancestral, where my dad grew up, is is a place called Goa, India. Mm. And so uh, we, we fortunately were there in January of this year before, even just as kind of COVID was 
hearing glimmers about it, about yeah. some you know unknown disease. But luckily, we got to see family and spend that time because it, it just seems like a, a crazy thing to do right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, right. You know, travel across the world and yeah. yeah, probably not until summer. Hopefully, yeah. By then, favorite food or drink? Love Indian food, mm. North Indian food. Good. Uh, any drink? Any- any particular restaurants in Houston? In Houston, yeah. One of our favorite is a place called Maharaja Boj. Mm. And so it's a veg place. I'm, I'm vegetarian. And yeah, that, that place is awesome. In terms of favorite drink, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I one of the things that I just I started drinking during the pandemic is just iced green tea. Mm. Yeah. You can just make it at home, no sugar, just, but it tastes a lot better than water <laughs> for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. And drinking green tea myself. I like to think it's healthy as well. Right. <laughs> well, hey, Ryan, this has been great. This is really good to learn about what you're doing at Life Changing Capital. I, I think you're doing great stuff and congrats on your success that you've had already. So congrats not only that, but on your success in your whole career in Wall Street as well. And just keep doing what you're doing. And thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to connect with you again and, and look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, cool. And one more time, can you tell people the website to go to? Just in sure. Case more? Yeah, thank yeah. you. It's lifechangingcapital.com. Great. And you, uh, if you want to connect, uh, my email and phone number, call, all the contact information is there. Is on the site? Okay, perfect. All right, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Rodolfo. Take all care. Right. You too. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.